Welcome to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Schill, a law professor at the University of Iowa. Today, we have the fifth in a series of special episodes from a recent symposium on the future of law and transportation. A quick programming note, our next release will feature one final special from the symposium, and then we'll return with traditional interview-based episodes later in the spring. Now, what you'll hear in this episode is a panel called Transportation and Finance, featuring Pamela Fui and Randall Johnson, professors of law at Indiana University Bloomington Moore School of Law and Mississippi College School of Law, respectively. They each speak for about 12 minutes and then take Q&A. The panel is moderated by Audrey McFarlane, a professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. We hope you enjoy the show. So first, huge thanks to Greg Schill and the students at the Iowa Law Review for organizing this truly fantastic symposium. I am a very new entrant into this world. I'm not a transportation scholar. I'm a bankruptcy, consumer finance, and commercial law scholar. And my entry point to transportation is consumer bankruptcy. And I mentioned that because I'm going to explain a bit more about it, because it's pertinent to my talk and my contribution, which is about the auto loan bubbles intersection with the pandemic's economic fallout and what it means for setting a policy agenda and how auto loans can play a role in larger policy. So what I'm mainly going to talk about is people's money, which is a little different than where we've been before. So as a background, I'm a co-investigator on the Consumer Bankruptcy Project, which is a long-running study over 35 years now, focusing on the people who file bankruptcy. And right now, my co-authors and I rely on court records and questionnaires we send to debtors to gather data. And with this iteration of the project, for the first time, we collected data about people's cars. We asked them about their cars, and we also took it from court records. With the idea of using the data to think about whether people were filing in part to keep their cars. And as we were building our seven-year data set, we watched the auto loan market overall and subprime hit record after record high. And at the same time, transportation policy continued to create a need for cars, as has been detailed in detail today. But federal and state government policies mainly, by and large, leave people on their own to purchase those cars. And most people purchase their car. They don't lease their cars. And a lot of people don't have money to do so. And then a lot of them don't have the type of credit record that encourages lenders to deal with them on a somewhat even playing field. So in short, transportation policy affects the auto sale and loan market to the disadvantage of groups of people with the greatest disadvantage flowing to communities of color. And this has led to a huge auto loan market 
which pre-pandemic had risen into a bubble, which was in danger of bursting with record amounts of outstanding loans and then millions upon millions of delinquencies. And the market largely remained intact because of a strong economy and low unemployment, which has changed and continues to change with the pandemic, which presents, I think, a critical moment to think about the faults in auto sales and loan markets, and then how that can fit in with broader ideas for reducing car dependency, and again, going back to transportation law. So before I get to the batches of ideas that I talk about in my contribution, I want to quickly mention bankruptcy's role in this because I'm all about bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is clearly my favorite entry point to catalog the faults in everything in society. Here, the auto selling and lending market. So in our paper about bankruptcy, which we titled Driven to Bankruptcy, through a cluster analysis, my co-authors and I find that there's a couple subsets of people who file bankruptcy with a primary motivation of keeping their cars. Stated differently, there's such a thing as a car bankruptcy. And these debtors constitute a third of bankruptcy filers every year, which is about 300,000 households per year. So that's more than 300,000 cars that are going through bankruptcy per year. And what's striking about these people is that the cars they seek to save are older. They're not worth all that much. They have, on average, very little equity in them. And then one of the two subsets are more likely to be Black households. They're more likely also to have negative equity in those cars, and they file a chapter of bankruptcy that is harder, longer, and more expensive. And to me, what also is striking, even more simply, is that there are people in these numbers filing bankruptcy to keep their cars. So striking that I wrote a paper solo about the legal, economic, and social mechanisms, including fintech, behind why people end up spending $1,500 to $3,500 to save a car that is worth, at a median, $5,400 and $8,900 for those two chapters that they file. That's a lot of money to save a car where you could potentially get one on the open market. Which brings me to the market dynamics here. And in short, they are such that car dealers and lenders control it. They set the terms. They create this state in which it's exceedingly difficult for a buyer to figure out the universe of terms that are in the car deal and also the car loan. And importantly, auto loans are part of this structure which is a theme with consumer credit and also consumer goods. And so 90% of people who buy cars get their loan through the place they purchase the car. Some dealers have in-house loan divisions. Other dealers partner with lenders, but they will not sell a car to someone unless they have lined up the lender. And newer entrants into this market also rely on this deep intertwining of sales and lending. And these newer entrants are primary online, they're apps for smartphones and tablets. And when you look underneath the app, 
you see that their customers are the auto dealers and the lenders, not the people who are using the app in any way. And all these companies rely on loans to make money. As evidence of this, in 2018, for the first time, overall in America, dealers made more money from the car loan that they sold than the car that they actually sold to the purchaser. And then on the backside, the lenders and sellers control repossession and resell. In fact, auto loans stand apart from almost every other type of consumer credit in that they're loans secured by the vehicle, but there's no protections, basically at all, for people from having their car seized. And this is by design and it's effectuated by lobbyists. And that means that sellers and lenders can take people's cars and given the way the market is structured, they want to do so, which is why people are filing bankruptcies to keep their cars. So which leads to what's going on with the bubble. And I know I only have a few minutes left. So the dynamics also inform why the bubble has not burst and why it will burst. And there's a few key reasons of why I think the market hasn't collapsed. First and second are the CARES Act payments to households and also the stopping of other debt. And then the third reason comes back to the auto lenders and sellers. They've propped up the market and they've done so with deals to new purchasers and with the stopping of repossession and giving loan deals to a certain base of current customers. But at some point, the goodwill of the government's going to end, at least for now. Maybe it'll come back. But people will struggle financially, and they're going to struggle more even in the coming months after the pandemic ends. Also, the goodwill of auto dealers and lenders also has to dry up. So delinquencies will skyrocket and the loan market will collapse. And this sounds ominous because it is, right? There's a good chance that a whole bunch of households will be forced to be car-free in the coming months and it's going to land harder on Black and Latino communities. But that means there are a potential to change auto lending because people are going to start losing their cars, and the government's going to be called to step in. And this is going to take money. And there's two levels of interventions that the government could take. The first is the obvious one. When you see the auto lending market collapse, you focus on putting money into the car market. And this presumes that people will continue to have to purchase their cars. And just to reiterate, auto sales and loan markets policy is transportation policy. And the question is, how can we use the auto loan market and the car sale market to make better transportation policy with that presumption that people will continue to buy cars? So in the paper, I say any significant change is going to require that sales and lending come under regulatory control, which the market largely has escaped, including from the CFPB. So intervention should dismantle the key elements of this car sales and loans that have granted outside power to dealers, which involves delinking sales and lending. In my contribution here, I take up different ideas for what it means to change the market by focusing on how money can flow to change how cars are produced and sold 
through both the buy side and the seller side. And I frame it around cash for clunkers because this is the frame that's being used in media now. But this is a way to get subsidies for electric vehicles and incentivize the production of smaller, safer vehicles to decrease the cost of car ownership and usage, also the real-life externalities. The second batch of interventions necessarily should move away from perpetuating America's history of prioritizing driving. So instead of augmenting the car economy, I think the pandemic presents the opportunity to shift the landscape of transportation. And this was the part of my draft that I needed the most help filling out. And I've taken copious notes with obvious ideas mentioned today about prioritizing projects that reduce the distance necessary to be traveled, putting in safety measures for pedestrians, bikers, and similar, and investing in infrastructure. And I strongly, as I think most of the people here do, support a move away from vehicles. And now might be the time to push for these because the pandemic has only increased people's interest for cars, which will push money to go into the car market. Yet this can be used as a turning point to figure out where the money goes more broadly. So my last thought is for those of you more directly in the transportation sector, don't discount or take your eyes off the auto loan market and its inevitable burst as a way to push for broader changes. I'll stop there. And I think I'm, I'm right around the 12 minute mark. Thank you, Pamela. Well, I will lead off. So Pamela, what you seem to be describing is that yet again, we are privatizing the profits and socializing the losses. Any thoughts about any viable way to tie the originators of these predatory loans to not be completely bailed out? That's the inflection point we're going to be at. What's going to happen is the auto lenders and the dealers together, because they're really one and the same at that point, including banks that you would go to to get a loan, are going to go to state and local governments and say, bail us out. The auto industry has been bailed out repeatedly, and this is the time to not bail them out. Or when they are bailed out, to give them money with a lot of restrictions on it. You are going to pass savings to people. We're going to fundamentally change the auto loan market more concretely or more, I think, importantly, we're going to change what cars look like. And so back to the presentations about these massive trucks and SUVs rolling down our roads. The money can't go to making those. And that is what is coming off the production lines around the world. So the money can be used to change the cars on the road. But also, I think that the broader point is it shouldn't be used for that. The government shouldn't say, great, here, GM, Ford, have a bunch of cash. Instead, what the government should say is, we're not going to prop up the auto loan market, which is where you're making your money from. Instead, we're going to use the money for something else and people just are going to be car free and they're going to be able to be car free in this country now. Okay, thank you. Do you picture an enforcement regime with sticks or carrots, incentives or penalties? And do we have the regime to enforce that? 
That's a great question. And so um, when you say regime, I imagine on the car side, on the loan side, we don't have a system to enforce that. So number one, whatever happens, car lending and car sales has to come under some sort of federal agency control. So when the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was set up, car dealerships lobbied hard and they are exempt from the CFPB. The CFPB does basically nothing with cars, particularly because of the linking between sales and loans. So it needs to get under a federal agency, number one. And I think carrots work better than sticks. And I also don't think the typical ideas of regulating the loans themselves are all that effective in a market where people need the good so much that they will pay whatever is put in front of them to get the car they need. So paying it to ability repay won't change the fact that people need cars. Having disclosures won't change the fact that people need cars. So it has to be, we're going to give you money to do this. Right, which is a carrot, and then sort of you're going to be in this lane, and you can't go to any other lane that's going to create more expensive cars that people won't be able to purchase and that have massive externalities in terms of deaths and injury in the country. Okay, so we have one question in the QA, and then John Saylor is the rising cost of autos relative to real wages driving or being driven by these long term underwater subprime loans? I love the use of the word driven repeatedly. Part of the issue with the cost of cars, one is the cost of cars is going up. Although most people who file bankruptcy and most lower income people don't have really expensive cars. What they have less of is money. So income inequality and widening wealth gaps feed into the ability for the subprime market to first get started. But then once people need something, and you can see this with payday loans and what's called alternative high-cost finance, they go to whatever is available quickly to them. And that is a market dynamic that is hard to overcome in the area of necessities like cars have become. Well, thank you, Pamela. That was excellent. Thank you. And now we're going to turn to... Professor Randall Johnson. Good afternoon, and thank you for having me. My name is Professor Randall Johnson, and I'm a professor of law at Mississippi College. My research and teaching focuses upon how U.S. governments make decisions, especially in the absence of perfect information. And more specifically, I'm interested in how U.S. governments make decisions under conditions of uncertainty. Now, this type of research has become increasingly important, particularly in the wake of COVID-19. And it's become important in part because of the reasonable limitations that governments have placed upon the things that citizens can do. And these reasonable limitations, they include things like the stay-at-home orders and other protective measures. And within this context, there's an unfortunate related effect on people, and it's that they suffer economic losses. So people have begun to ask U.S. governments to help offset these losses. And in doing so, governments have responded in a number of different ways. For example, governments have provided direct transfers and other types of direct subsidies. But a less examined way that governments helped offset these losses are providing things like the video tolling subsidy. So I'm going to build on some of the proposals that we've heard earlier 
in framing this brief presentation. I'm going to start by talking about what the video tolling subsidy is and why I think it should be reevaluated. So as a roundabout way of beginning this discussion, I'm going to give a brief introduction to tolls. Now, most people are familiar with tolls, but I'm going to reframe it a bit in terms of tax law so that we have very specific understandings. So tolls, by definition, are taxes with a limited base. And the tax base is made up exclusively of drivers, people who want to make use of a publicly owned and administered roadway. So in Illinois, tolls are going to be collected using three basic criteria, the characteristics of the vehicle, the entry point into the system, and how far people actually go on the highway. So it's commonly assumed that people that fail to pay tolls, and you can do this very easily, those people are supposed to be subject to sanctions, but that's actually not what always happens. And the reason that this assumption is only partially true is because the state of Illinois is overly forgiving. And they have a tendency to be overly forgiving with respect to errors that are made by people that can be characterized as predictable and systematic. So there's basically two possible results when a person fails to actually pay a toll or pay the entire amount. So in the first case, which applies to large number of drivers, you're actually going to be subject to sanctions and these are going to take the form of you're going to get a ticket, you're going to have to pay a fine, or you're going to suffer some other penalty. Now, in the second case, which is a special case, and that's going to be the focus of our analysis, is when a person has electronic transponder, such as an Easy Pass or the Illinois-issued iPass, they're not actually ever going to be subject to sanctions. And the idea behind this differential treatment of these different types of toll violators is that there's a presumption given to transponder users. The presumption is that these people want to pay, but something stopped them from following through. Individuals without a transponder aren't given that type of deference. Those people are going to be hammered with the state sanctions that we assume apply. And maybe we could think about why this doesn't make sense. But more broadly speaking, and what I care more about, is how much does it cost the state to fail to perfectly enforce the law? So one way to think about it is to look at the measurable costs of when they fail to enforce and if it conveys some kind of hidden subsidy. So if we look at the failure to give people a ticket, we can understand that as some kind of ticket exemption. And if the state gives up collecting that money, they're actually losing $120 for each infraction. There's like a second subsidy that attaches whenever the state doesn't fully enforce the toll laws. And that's what we call the 50% toll rate discount, which is given automatically to a person with a transponder. Now, generally speaking, you have to meet the qualifying conditions in order to receive a discount. But for Illinois, for reasons that aren't entirely explained, they still honor that discount even when people fall short. And then the last category, which is the focus of this presentation, I'm going to talk about the video toll and subsidy. The video toll and subsidy arises from the fact that Illinois doesn't collect its incidental damages, which is what it costs for them to cover. And they cover in circumstances in which they don't receive tolls in a timely manner. So they have to find a different way to hold these people account. And that means that they actually have to pay. So how does the state of Illinois rationalize 
these three categories of subsidies in a situation in which they have budgetary shortfalls. So I actually looked at what the Illinois Tollway says in public statements. When you look at what the Illinois Tollway uses to justify its failure to hold transponder users to account, they're really focused on situations in which they could see themselves, in which it makes sense that someone would fall short. Now, let's talk specifically about the three basic situations in which a person fails to pay a toll. For example, a person might not bring their transponder along, and as a result, they don't pay result. A second situation in which a person doesn't properly mount a transponder that they have in their car. And this is another example of human error that could easily be avoided and maybe shouldn't be allowed to receive relief. And the last situation is even more counterintuitive in a sense that a person could fail to pay simply because they don't actually properly maintain their transponder unit, for example, by letting the batteries run out. So none of these three situations seem to be those that we want to give people a pass. And one of the reasons is that in doing so, you encourage bad behavior and it actually imposes the losses on the state. So the focus of my work isn't merely on describing the reasons why we should reconsider the video toll and subsidy. A secondary goal is to actually compute the amount that it costs the state in a given year. And so in 2018, which was the first year under which Illinois allowed a fewer number of these subsidies, prior to 2018, people could get them as many times as they want. But going forward, you're limited to 60 in a given year. And so if we understand that the video toll and subsidy costs 15 cents each time, and you multiply it by the 60 different awards the person gets, then you're able to compute a $9 subsidy for every single transponder user during the course of a year. This $9 per transponder user doesn't seem like much, at least to a U.S. state, but actually any amount of money that's spent on an ineffective subsidy or an unjustified subsidy would seem to be too much. So if we compute it, the total amount of the veto subsidy, if it was given to all 4.5 million transponder users, it will cost the state of Illinois over $40 million for a policy that doesn't make much sense. Now, luckily, when I computed the actual amount of this subsidy over the course of 2018, it was much less than $40 million. It was just over $8 million. But $8 million is something we need to think about, especially in light of Illinois' historic budgetary issues. So in drawing attention to this unjustified subsidy, I hope to open a new discussion. A particular concern is whether overly forgiving policies might open a door for states to have more money available to be able to give transfers to people who need them in a way that's much more cost effective. So I guess with that, I'll open up the floor for people to answer any questions that they have. But again, thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to what you have to say. Thank you, Randall. Are there any questions? Hi. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Hello. Uh, I, yeah, sorry. I I've been using the raise hand feature, but it's maybe hidden uh, a bit. But that was great. Thank you so much. I don't know if you've been paying attention to a similar issue that's been happening here in Connecticut. So Connecticut is one of the few states on the East Coast that does not have tolls. And we had gone back and forth over the last couple of legislative sessions about the governor proposed tolls, and then he walked it back, and then was going to be on trucks only. And now he just said yesterday, he's not doing tolls at all. 
And I kind of think part of what's missing is the way that you describe the way you look at their maybe unintended externalities and or perhaps, you know, the way they subsidize certain kinds of behavior. So I guess I'm just wondering, do you see this playing out across different states politically? Maybe politics is on my mind this week, but I'm just curious if you had any comments about that or familiar with the back and forth here. Well, I wish that there were more focus upon the actual cost of policies. And by saying that, what I'm not looking at is merely using economic analysis, but actually what states have to give up in order to provide a particular good and service. And so with that in mind, anytime they decide to spend money on something that's not core to its mission, they should have to justify it in economic terms or using some alternatives such as distributional equity. So when I talk about distributional equity, there's two basic things I think about, perfect equality of treatment and something like the difference principle that allows people who are worse off to receive a benefit, even if there's not equal treatment of all people. And so in order for this to work at the state or local level, elected officials and staff have to know what's going on. And they can't be married to the way things are. They have to question each particular policy and whether it should persist over time. There's a question in the Q&A from a Kurt Nordback. Did you look at how inequitably this subsidy benefits drivers? For example, what are the relative demographics of drivers with and without transponders? Excellent. So I worked with the Illinois Tollway to get this data over the course of, I think, two years, we were able to come up with a way of structuring the information. And once I did, I was able to get information at the household level, at the zip code level, and then use it to create a data set. And that data set allowed me to look at all 102 counties in Illinois and look at their demographic characteristics. And in doing so, I was able to determine how much of the subsidy was given based on race, income, and location. And so, yes, with that in mind, that was the goal. And what you found was for every category, except for income, people who are more well-off got more of the subsidy. And that seemed to be a bit unjustified. Gregory Schill has a question. Yeah, I wanted to offer a proposed synthesis. There's a theme that I've seen in, in your work here as well as a number of the other papers and here and presentations, I'm thinking of David Prithard, I'm thinking of Ken Stalls, I'm thinking of Jonathan Levines and many others. There's a, a call in your paper for a principle of regularity and the rule of law. I think there's something about this subsidy seems kind of problematic, right? And the distributional part is a big problem of that. And that part, I think, picks up on many of the other themes today. But there's also a kind of detachment from standard principles of public policy that the state hasn't really bothered to defend. And I see your project as part of a a larger piece of trying to hold the state to account to have to justify what it is doing when it is engaging in discriminatory treatment. Just a proposed friendly observation. Yeah, I think it's very astute. I agree. Do you think there should be any kind of private cause of action for these inequities? I like the idea of a private cause of action with respect to any of these type of, anytime there's a subsidy given, I think people should be able to weigh in and draw attention to that measure. I'm not sure exactly how it will work, and I'm open to suggestions, but I think one possibility would be able to say, hey, I looked at this subsidy, and I want you to explain why you're giving it. 
when I raise these questions directly to the Illinois Toll Highway Authority, which is what we call the Illinois Tollway, they instantly got defensive when I asked why these subsidies are provided because they don't believe that they're subsidies. They believe that they're grace, they're courtesies that are given on the basis of the fact that people fall short. And we should take that into account in making public policy decisions. Now, I'm not against that concept, but it opens the door to unequal treatment as between people. Because what's grace to one person is discrimination. And we have to be careful with that line. Along the idea of a private right of action, is this project related to Title VI liability? Now, I'm not familiar with that. Could someone explain? Where there's the use of federal funds, you will be liable, at least administratively, for any discrimination or disparate impact. I do have a bit of a concern with that concept, because I do think that when inequalities work in favor of people who are less well-off, I think they can be justified. Because if the goal, the purpose, desire of state action is increase the real freedoms that we enjoy, people who are less well-off have less opportunities than the rest of us. So in the interest of leveling the playing field, I think it's completely appropriate to give them a leg up because it's actually not unfair to anyone else because we should actually pay fair freight. Okay. Last question. Do Illinois transit agencies extend the same courtesy to people who don't pay their fares? I think that's a rhetorical question. And that's the short answer is no. And my other point about this is in any other setting, if you don't actually pay, what's going to happen to you? You will go directly to jail. Look at your hometown, New York City. What happens to people that jump the turnstiles? They're dealt with. Yeah, (laughs) immediately. All right. Well, thank you for that excellent presentation. And this was a fabulous panel. Thanks to Pamela and Randall. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you to my co-host, Jeff Lynn. Thank you to our producer, Skylar Pals, and to all of you, our listeners. If you haven't already, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find the show. You can subscribe there as well. The views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.